Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is leading a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Kanisha, and this week, Jack, Madeline, guest podcaster Jed, and I spoke with John Pellicero, a senior scholar on government ethics at the Marcula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University, and a professor emeritus of political science at Loyola University, Chicago. Ethics are something many of us don't think or talk about enough yet, as Jack put it, are an underlying bedrock that, if properly addressed, could help solve a lot of our current societal challenges. So what are government ethics? It's a broad framework to contextualize the ethical issues and awareness that we seek from public officials in the political system. For example, campaigns, elections, issues that confront voters. The foundation comes from Aristotle and other ancient philosophers and is organized around the notion of the common good and how the public interest can best be served through the powers given to the government. At the founding of our country, people gave up some of their individual power to a collective government with the belief that everyone would benefit. Has that value proposition been achieved? Government ethics don't make things utopian. Professor Pellicero underscored that there will always be winners and losers in a political system. Morally, that's not wrong. But if there is a pattern and a population is consistently left out, we are demonstrating bias and not serving the public. Being good fiduciary actors and ensuring that we are being fair in how we protect people and allocate the benefits of our government. We talked about the age-old question of delegate versus trustee government. That is, should elected officials be beholden to their constituency or to what they think is best? What are the appropriate ways for representatives to check in with people? And, surprise, surprise, we spoke about the need for basic education in civics and ethical awareness to undergird all this. Thank you for listening. Hey everybody, my name's Jack. I'm a high school junior in Manhattan. I joined NextGen about a year ago when I did a civic action project about freedom of expression. So we created a really interesting survey which got sent out to New York City high school students and we gathered a lot of interesting data about sort of freedom of expression and freedom of speech in New York City public high schools. And then since then I moved on, I'm on the podcast team now and I'm so, so, so thrilled to be talking about ethics today. I think philosophy and sort of ethics especially is one of those things that as I've taken more courses in it, as I've read myself, I'm more and more convinced that it's sort of an underlying bedrock that nobody really talks about, that if we could just figure out, all our problems would be solved. Also, I'm kind of very interested in the fact that it seems there are a lot of unanswerable problems and sort of unsolvable problems, but I think that that is just all part of like the real interest and intrigue of ethics. So I'm so excited to be talking about these issues today. My name is Jed. I am a high school student in New York City. I joined NextGen as a civic fellow and completed a community action project on media literacy. So my school is very grounded on ethics, but I feel like we haven't taken the step that it needs to be taken. And so I'm here to learn about applying ethics and how it kind of takes its form in like academic and professional contexts. So I'm very excited to be on this. Hi, I'm Kanisha. I'm a high school junior from Queens, New York. And in addition to being on the podcast team, I'm also a facilitator at YVote. And for me, just this semester, actually, I started taking political theory class. And in that class, at least throughout the year, we're going to be like going through the text of multiple philosophers, just like chronologically. We read Plato, we learned about Socrates, reading Augustine right now. So it's a lot of very dense philosophical reading and having discussions about those topics. And just building on what Jack was saying, I've also tried to kind of understand the underlying forces of government. Over the last while that I've been on the podcast and with YVote, we've learned a lot about systems of power, how we can kind of play a role in them and how we can make change in our communities. But I think a lot of times we kind of forget where government started. 
which is for the good of the people and to try to achieve this fundamental human thing. So today I'm just like really excited to talk about how government has evolved and how we've seen these underlying questions that we've been asking since we could ask them, how we've seen those questions grow into today's modern context as our world has gotten more complex and as government systems have grown over time. And just like what we can do to hopefully help government achieve what it was originally meant to achieve. Because I feel like a lot of times now, the way we read things in media, it feels like government has strayed a bit. So I'm just like really excited to talk about those more like overarching frameworks that our government is originally based on. Hi everyone, my name is Madeline and I'm a high school junior from Brooklyn, New York. And in addition to being a podcaster, I'm also a lead civic fellow here at NGP. And kind of in the vein of Kanisha, I'm really interested in what a government ethics looks like and how we actually can work to promote the public interest in all the different facets of our government. I'm taking AP US History this year, which I am completely fascinated by. And something that continuously strikes me about what I'm learning that is kind of like an underlying issue that we don't really talk about is how much corruption we see that just like it's swept under the rug. And I keep wanting to bring out this ethical conversation in my classrooms. And there isn't really much time or opportunity to. For example, right now I'm learning about, or we just finished learning about Andrew Jackson's spoil system, which continuously fascinates me that the fact that he was able to have this kitchen cabinet that was just on the side that was okay and how these patterns have continued into the modern world and just shapes the way that we see government and politics through a modern lens. So I'm interested in having that conversation about ethics with you today. I'm a political scientist who focuses on American politics and my specialties have been urban and state politics. I've had a long-standing interest in issues around political ethics. And in my time, I've seen the importance of these rise systematically. And each time we go through a period of reform and we think we've sort of resolved many of the problems, they still continue. The last two years, I've been working not so much as a teaching political scientist, which I did at Loyola University Chicago for 35 years, but I've been working as a senior scholar at Santa Clara University in government ethics. I primarily write and consult with governments and public officials and reporters about issues that come up in political and governmental circles. I'm looking forward to your questions tonight. So I guess to kick off the conversation, we talk about sort of this term government ethics. Can you tell us a little bit more about what does that mean? I know, so I'm taking a course in ethics right now, and I took one over the summer, actually. And we've explored a lot of different ethical systems, utilitarianism, sort of consequentialism more broadly, virtue ethics, all of these. And I'm wondering, can you speak a little bit more about how you might take those and apply them to government? Or what does it mean when you say government ethics? Can you give our listeners a little bit of context? So government ethics is sort of a broad rubric that can be used to encapsulate ethical issues and ethical awareness that we seek in and from governments, from public officials, in the political system more broadly, which would include political campaigns, elections, and even the ethical issues that confront voters when they go to the polls. 
when they prepare to vote. These are all issues that kind of tie together into the broader government ethics question. And when it comes to government ethics, I'm glad, Jack, that you mentioned several different frameworks that are oftentimes used in studying ethics. We look at it from a practical, applied standpoint. A lot of the work on government ethics actually derives from the Greek philosophers, and there's a lot of Aristotle in the foundational basis for what we seek from governments. And I think it might have been Madeline who mentioned the public interest. And public interest is tied very directly to this philosophical notion of the common good, that the role of government is to serve the common good of people and of the jurisdiction, the nation, the city, whatever it might be. We expect that the public interest and notions of the common good will always be first and foremost in the minds of public officials. It's somewhat surprising to us who have been following ethical awareness and its development in governments, how often the common good is forgotten about, how often the public interest seems to take a second place position to other political or private interests. So that's a little bit about what government ethics is concerned with. It fundamentally, though, does come down to how best can the common good be served with the powers that the people gives to its government. So I I think the power of the people is such an important concept that's ingrained into our nation. It's such like an idealized situation, a perfect event that is supposed to be evident throughout all of the different checks and balances and structures that our government has in place to really enforce that. I can't help but think, what does that actually look like? And how do we actually obtain having actual power of the people and how public interest is promoted because it's what we've tried to do since 1776, and yet we still have struggles with it. So I guess my question is, what actual steps do we need to take in order to fulfill this huge undertaking? The foundation for democracy involved the people giving up some of their individual control and powers to an entity that we call government with the sole purpose of serving what would be best for the community, for the society of people that live within the borders, the jurisdiction of a government. And so we, of course, know a fair amount about how the founding fathers sought to achieve that and serve the common good, as you mentioned, starting back in 1776 and in putting together eventually a constitution for the United States in which basic principles of good governance would be served whenever the public officials themselves and those that are given powers to serve in a government, act in the public interest. In a very practical sense, that means what's best for the whole of the government, the whole of the society. It won't serve everyone, but how do we best serve the majority? And how do we ensure that if the minority view was not accepted on this public policy decision or this action of the government, that that minority won't be ignored in a subsequent decision? Because you'll always have winners and losers in a political system. And from a moral standpoint, from an ethical standpoint, that is not wrong. But if there is a pattern to which 
which group always wins, which group is best served by government, and some entity is consistently left out, then we're not serving the public interest. And there is, in fact, a bias, an unethical pattern that has developed in the political system, and that's not acceptable. So the way to think about this is that the public interest is attended to whenever, first and foremost, public officials are thinking about how do we attend to the common good? How do we ensure that we're good fiduciary actors in regard to the rights of our citizens, of the tax dollars, the public funds that we have been entrusted to manage? Are we being fair in how we protect people and how we allocate the benefits of a government that we've been entrusted to manage? I hear you talking on how complex and sometimes divided the public interest is. I think that stands also not only in interest, but in values. And there is undoubtedly common agreement on what is ethical and what is unethical ethical when it comes to policy. How does government ethics interact with and hopefully transcend these different understandings of morality? I think it begins with one's basic education associated with civics and ethical awareness. I think it's extremely important that in the course of our education, and we all continue to be students of public life and government, if you will, and philosophy as we grow and, and we mature and we become more politically socialized. And that means that education is where we can develop this ethical awareness that we would take into the ballot box as voters, where we would actually understand the importance and the duties and rights we have as a voter, that we're educated before we go and cast ballots. It extends then to how those who are chosen, those who are selected through election processes, are able to apply ethical awareness and ethical standards to how they act. And again, in a very practical sense, that means I may have a lot of personal interests and uh, I may have businesses that I'm involved with. And I take on a role in government as an elected member of a school board, a city council, state legislature, or even in Congress. It's incumbent upon me to ensure that I'm always putting the public interest first and not trying to advance my private interests or my political interests when I'm acting as a government official. Doing so requires that I possess a certain amount of ethical awareness. So what each of you is experiencing in your own educational development and your own political socialization right now is very important to you developing the fundamental aspects of being an ethically aware and ethically capable individual who can act in the best ways for our society. A lot of the focus on government ethics might be around government agencies and the people who are elected or appointed public officials in those roles, but it really extends to you and I as individuals who have possessed this right to vote, who will be able to act in various ways that are provided for civic and political participation. And we need to do so in ways that ensure that we'll be contributing to an ethical society. Everything you've been saying been on my mind a lot recently because I just had to write a paper on a book fittingly called Politics and I was racking my brain trying to figure out which point I wanted to like nitpick in like my three-page paper. Something I got really interested in was how in the book Aristotle, he ranks governments going from like kingship first, then it's aristocracy, polity, 
democracy, oligarchy, and tyranny. And to me, I was kind of like thinking about the applications of that in a modern context and how we structure our government, famously a government by the people, of the people, for the people. And what that made me think about is especially because right now in New York City, you know, we've got a new mayor coming in, we've got new municipal governments coming in, we've got midterms coming up, kind of made me think about, so when a government official is in place, I guess, to what extent do you think, especially like in the context of whether it's like municipal, state or federal governments, should they be beholden to the promises they made to their constituency versus just what they as people think is best. When it comes to representative governments, there's always this huge gap, at least me as a member of the constituency. Are they going to mostly be focusing on what we put them in office for? Or is it just like what they think they should be doing with the power that we've granted them? That's a great question and a great debate that still takes place in our society about what is the proper role of a representative once they're chosen to be in particular in a legislative body. Are they there to represent the direct interests of the people who voted for them? And must they from time to time check in with the people and see, what do you think about this issue? How do you think I'm doing in representing your interests in the legislative body? But there's another view that once elected, these individual representatives get to be our trustees for the next two years or four years in office, six years in the case of the United States Senate, in which case they're going to draw upon their own experience, their own values, and their own knowledge about our political system and make public policy decisions and take actions that they believe are the right ones at this time. So a trustee doesn't feel the obligation to consistently check in with the constituents. Instead, we'll say in two years or four years or six years, there'll be another election. And if I'm not doing what you want, you'll vote for someone else. But while you have elected me and while I am serving in office, you have entrusted me with the power and authority to make decisions that I believe are in the best interests of the people. But the delegate role seems more consistent with democracy. It seems more consistent with what we wanted to do when we set up this representative democracy in which I've been chosen through election to represent the people. And that means I am their delegate. And as the delegate, I need to know what my constituents want, what my constituents are thinking on an issue, what my constituents even believe or feel about my current postures and actions as a public official. Those who study the American national government oftentimes will use as an example that the U.S. House of Representatives functions more like a delegate representative body. That is, because they come up for election every two years, they are more connected and more tuned in to their constituents because they know that they're going to be campaigning basically every other year and need to be in touch with their constituents. Those elected to the United States Senate serving six-year terms representing broad entire state rather than small districts within that state, they act more like trustees for those reasons that they have a bigger constituency, they can't be in touch and know what everyone in that constituency wants, and because they serve a six-year term, they don't feel the same obligation to consistently check in, if you will with the voters. So it's an ongoing debate, Kanisha, for what we believe our representatives should do in a representative democracy, delegate or trustee.
when I first learned about government and ethics, I kind of immediately thought about two things. The first being policy-wise, like substantive decision-making, and the second being representing the people and common good and those obligations. Can you talk a little bit about how it pertains to running for office? I think ethical campaigns are something that I'm seeing less and less of. I actually believe that unethical campaigners are actually benefiting from some of these tactics that they're using, such as like making a lot of promises and sort of manipulating the system to get reelected. Can you talk about ethical campaigning and how that fits in with the field? Ethical campaigns are a really important component of government ethics, Jed. In our system, we need to hold candidates, those running for office for the first time, and those who are in office who are running for re-election, to a high standard of expectations in terms of what they promise to do and what they will do when ultimately elected to office. And one of the ways that campaigns can and must be ethical is to ensure truthfulness in their campaign messaging, that is in their campaign literature, in their communications, in the way they use social media, and other more established forms of traditional media as a way of communicating their positions. They need to be honest. Secondly, they need to understand as a candidate that if someone makes a campaign donation to their election efforts, they can't see that as a quid pro quo for any kind of return, any specific vote, any specific action on the part of the candidate uh, should they be elected because of this campaign donation. My predecessor at the Markula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University, Hannah Callahan, was a former congressional staffer and a former campaign manager for several individuals who ran for Congress and state legislatures. And she wrote a book on running ethical campaigns and really made this point very clear that in order to have an ethical campaign and to be carrying an ethical posture into elective office, candidates running for office have to follow kind of a strict code of ethics. If one wants to see what that might look like and actually get candidates to sign on to an ethical code of conduct, one can go to our website, scu.edu ethics and you'll find the materials related to ethical campaigning and then also ethical voting. I think one of the most important things that we all can develop, and hopefully we do this as young individuals, is to develop that ethical awareness and to know how to make an ethical decision. The Markla Center has great resources in that regard. That's all for today with Next Gen Politics. I'm editor Irina Chowdhury signing off. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org slash podcast for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded.